calling all engineers, computer scientists, web designers, architects, and all those involved with technology. Are you a Christian who's passionate about developing technology? How do your faith and work intersect? Do they intersect? And how can designing and using technology actually be a way of loving God and our neighbours. Hi, and welcome back to the God Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle, and our guest on the show this time is Ethan Brew. Ethan is one of the authors, together with Derek Sherman and Stephen van der Lest, of a new book from IVP America called A Christian Field Guide to Technology for Engineers and Designers. Ethan is a professor of engineering at Dort University in Iowa in the States. He's worked as an engineering consultant in the energy generation sector and as a research and development engineer in the agricultural science and technology industry. He served in industry as an R&D engineering project leader for DuPont Pioneer and as a mechanical engineering consultant in the power division of Black and Veatch. And his interests, I note in his biography, include thermochemical reactor design and biomass gasification. Now, Ethan, I'm going to um, welcome to the show. First of all, I'm going to avoid, for I'm going to avoid the temptation to ask you about biomass gasification because I'm fascinated by it, but I'm, I know nothing about it. But can we, let's talk about this book. Maybe we can circle back at the end and talk a bit about those interests. Why do so Sounds many? Good. Yeah, why do so many Christians who are working in the technology sector struggle to engage their faith with their work? You know, I think there's a, a variety of reasons for that, but I think it might start with our Western tradition of educating engineers. I think one of the things that you'll see at so many institutions is, uh, is a curriculum that's just based exclusively on, on science and math and numbers and calculations. And the reality is that engineering is, is not that when you're out there. It's actually about culture making. It's about shaping communities. It's about helping people. But our education so shifts us toward that narrow view that I think what unfortunately comes with that is people begin to say, okay, I'm an engineer. So it just deals with the numbers or just deals with the design. And then my faith life must be in some other realm or some other space. And I think even Christians are tempted to see that. Uh, it's I think if you speak to any engineer who's been in industry, it's not the reality, but it is what I think our education sort of tells us it is. Yeah. Does working in technology provide particular challenges for Christians? You know, I, th I wonder if it's not that much different than other disciplines. Sometimes I, I think we treat this technology like it's a, this autonomous monster out there that engineers and others try to battle. And I try to change the story of that saying, technology is not a thing. It's something we do as human beings. And so is it difficult? Of course, it's difficult as any human activity is. In other words, we can take it in the very, very wrong directions, or we can take it in very, very beautiful and healing directions as well. And I think that's, so I always remind people before you start talking about technology, I'm going to use it as something that's so integral to who you are as a human being. I think even if you're not an engineer or, or in those fields, you're actually doing technology. I think everybody does technology. And so in that light, yeah, it's difficult. Of course, life is difficult because at each junction, we have this choice, serve God or serve some other idol. And we struggle with that as human beings. So I think it's there in technology as well. Yes, I want to go and talk a bit about technology and how technology is affecting us, because this is a, a significant chapter of your book, and I found this fascinating. Do you think technology has built-in biases and preferences? Yes. 
um, maybe you, you work with it so long, it's like, oh, do I have to elaborate on that? I'm just going to say, yes, it does. And that's, but it's probably a lot of people don't see it that way. I think we don't always see what we can and cannot do with a particular technology, but there's not a design that I send out there as an engineer that doesn't both enable, but also disable other things. It definitely helps in this area, but you can't do it this as well because now you have this. And I think that's one of the realities. I think, uh, I don't know, I still like Neil Postman's classic book, Amusing Ourselves to Death in the communication technology world. I see it as a technology book, um, but he, he does such a good job of saying there's certain mediums that you can't do certain things in. And the technology actually enables or disables that. So I think that's true of even the broader, bigger technologies as well. Yes. Is technology blameless or neutral? Because that's another area you examine in the book, isn't it? Yeah. Again, I'm probably dealing with semantics again. And here I'm going to try to claim back a word with my students. I'm always telling them, I'd like you to think of technology as an activity. And now that question comes differently at us. You know, is technology blameless? I don't ask that question. I ask the question, are humans blameless? And it's a lot easier for us to say, okay, I get that now. No, we're not. But then technology comes with us. So in other words, because it's the activity that broken human beings do, it will come with the colors of broken humanity alongside it. Can we blame technology? I'd actually rather not blame technology. I'd actually put the blame where it belongs. And that is with human beings who make technology. We are either both sinful, but then sometimes we're just simply human. Like we couldn't see it. I, I, sometimes we think that every bad technology is always the result of sin. And I think that's not always true. I think we're just pretty much short-sighted. We're just, we can only see so much. And sometimes that's part of our failures as well. So when we blame, we've got to be careful. Sometimes it's wrongness. Sometimes it's just being human. So. I wonder how our modern technology is shaping us and changing us. Yeah, it is changing us. I, I wish I could like pin down an easy answer on that because at every corner, when I look at a new technology, I, uh, I say, yeah, I've adapted this, I'm using this, uh, or I've created this. And then I don't even notice sometimes the way I communicate or the way I actually process information these days compared to what I did before. Um, is my ability to focus diminishing? I'd like to say not, but I think it actually is because of the way I have to process information and the way we deal with information in a in a electronic era. So that's the simplest thing. Is it changing me? Has the automobile changed me? I don't know. I dropped into the the space in which the automobile was the in the States, the way we do transportation. But absolutely, when we start talking about moving to different forms of transportation, why do I resist it? Well, it's because it has shaped me into being who I am because I have automobility around me. And so I can't deny that it is has already shaped me even before I know it, but it is shaping me even as things change as well. Yeah, I want to come on and talk about the book and how it came about in, in, a, in a moment, but I just want to pursue this theme, if we may, of, of technology changing us and how it's shaping us. You have a section, if I remember correctly, on artificial intelligence and transhumanism in, in the book, which fascinated me. Now, what's your view of artificial intelligence and transhumanism, and can it be seen as what you call idol-making? Yeah, here's where I like to flip the question a little bit when we deal with artificial intelligence. The underlying assumption when we even use the word artificial intelligence comes with a presupposed belief 
of what intelligence is. And in the engineering world, we know that when I've designed a computer, there are only two things that computer can think. At the basis, it can think a one or it can think a zero. Now, I'm amazed that in this Boolean digital world, we've been able to do all sorts of things to hide that one and zero behind everything. So we get images in front of our screens and all of that kind of stuff as well. And so it almost looks like we've got computers making decisions. I've got robots that look very human, right? All of that. But the reality is they only can respond in the framework of a digital world in which foundationally ones and zeros and responses to algorithms and preset algorithms are what they can only do. Now, if you want to concede that they're thinking like humans, I think what we're actually doing is that we're actually conceding that human thinking is digital. And once we've said that's the way we need to think, in other words, the only way to think is rationally, all right? It's always analytical, it's always algorithmic. Is that what humans are? Well, I'd beg to differ on that. So even the word artificial intelligence comes with a, an assumption of what it means to think and what it means to be human. So I'm gonna push back, is it possible to have artificial intelligence? It's possible to have digital world look like some of the rational algorithmic decisions that humans make, but I don't think that's all of what it means to be human and think like a human and, and, and act and behave like a human. So I'm a, a skeptic, uh, if, if, if that's the right word. And human beings don't think digitally, or do they? I don't think we do. In fact, that's part of the book is that actually, I think humans think imaginatively mm. and uh, they, they think about things that aren't, that don't come out of rational input output statements. We actually extend ourselves, at least a lot of technological development actually shows that we aren't thinking rationally. We're actually thinking irrationally about a future that we can't even imagine. And yet we're actually trying to create things to match up with that future that we desire. And I think that that's beautifully human, um, dangerously human too, but beautifully human. Um, and that's what is different about, say, computers and humanity. So we shouldn't be concerned or alarmed about AI and transhumanism? Should we embrace it? How much of it should we embrace? You know, concerned, yes. And I, basically, I think we should be concerned more fundamentally about the worldview that's driving AI and the worldview that's driving transhumanism than we are about the actual artifacts that are coming out of, of artificial intelligence and transhumanism. I think we have to get at the root of the definition of what it means to live in community as a creature before the face of God. Of course, that's the language of the Christian community. You know, how do we speak that in, in a pluralistic world? But that's a more important question than shall we proceed with this technology or not proceed with this technology? What sort of worldview is driving much of AI and transhumanism? I think that it could easily be described as a, a, a deeply technicistic, materialistic worldview. One that sees the whole picture of humanity, communities, everything else, simply running like some kind of machine. There's some kind of optimal best answer. And if we can get to that, um, then we'll reach some kind of human paradise. And uh, that's something that I think I simply reject as, as one who follows the biblical story and narrative. I can't go there with you. And, and that's at the root I think of the driving force of the motivation for transhumanism. So much technology is driven by worldview in point of fact, rather than just driven by technology per se. Oh, absolutely. I say, you know, if people say, what do you think of the future? You know, you're an engineer, you should tell me what, what's the future going to look like? I'm going to say, well, what is, what is a culture going to dream about? What are they hoping for? What are their, their deepest yearnings and longings? And if you look at that, 
I guarantee you the technology is going to mimic that. It's going to look something like that. So look for the longings first, and then you'll have an idea of where the technology is heading. What drives our dreams and longings to invent? What drives humanity? What drives this ambition to invent things and create things? You know, I used to think maybe it was always like needs. You know, we were hungry. Uh, we were cold. We were, you know, there's sort of this kind of narrative that says there are practical human needs for survival that drive technology. But as one who studied the history of technology, I can't help but see that I don't know what the percent would be, but 50% of the technologies that come out, I say, well, why did you design that? There just seems to be a delight. There seems to be a playfulness with somebody just trying to imagine doing something differently. And uh, so that's one of the things that I probably differ from a lot of folks. I think that what drives technology quite often is something central to how God created us, to take delight in his creation, to make something of it and to develop it. And certainly to, to provide needs, you know, to meet needs of people as well. But I don't think that's just it. So our dreams are also tied up in playing. They're just, there's just something fun about doing technology as well, I think. so. And because presumably we're created in the image of God and therefore he creates, so we want to create. Yeah, yep, absolutely. There's a playfulness. I'd like to think, and maybe I'm superimposing things on, on God that I shouldn't, but it does seem like he suggests that there's a playfulness at oh, which absolutely. he made creation. Yeah, and, I, and I think just in the, it is good, it is good, it is good refrain, just seems to me he takes delight in it. And uh, there's a funness. Yes, he's a God who creates in super abundance, almost purely for the sake of creating, I think, sometimes. It's just, it's yeah. genius beyond compare, really. It's, uh, it's incredible. How does faith underlie all our technology dreams, do you think? You know, I think that it comes down to when each of us step out the door in the morning, and we say, okay, I'm going to work. What, it is a, what is it about this day that's going to drive me through it, that's going to have me do what I need to do? And not every day do I think in these big, you know, eschatological you know, pictures. But I do think that underneath it all, when we sit back and reflect on what we do, we need to have a trajectory to our life. We need to be going somewhere. And so for Christians, I think it's the hope that the tomb is empty. And that Christ promised that there's everything is going to be different now. And we still can't make sense of it on Monday morning. It just seems like the same old again. But he comes and says everything is different. And then he gives us these beautiful pictures in Revelation and other places that look to a new creation. Something that's redone and rebuilt. And the crazy thing about it is this dream doesn't really have a lot of specifics to it. But it's enough to animate us to say Okay, based on what I see where God is taking his world and the things that he loves, we can begin then to, to point to it. I, don't, I hesitate to say bring it because I just don't like that word. But I think we just put signs up that say God is coming. See what he can do. Take delight in some of these things that he takes delight in on the way. And then that itself is the motivation, just the pointing to the coming kingdom and I don't think engineering's done at the end there. I, I just have this, maybe I'm holding on to this, but it just seems like it's just too good to be able to play just like sports and music and all those things. I expect those in the new creation. I expect tinkering in the new creation as well. Idealized tinkering, tinkering that exactly. achieves its purpose and doesn't fall apart halfway through, like my video camera is during this interview. <laughs> <I can't laughs> exactly. Exactly. So how can we reflect the recreation and restoration that Christ brings? How can we reflect the, the new creation in our engineering and in mm -hmm. our design? 
I think something something simple can start right away with with joy. I think I tended to grow up in a Christian community that it was all about the do nots. And I think there's good, those boundaries are good and they're healthy, but I also didn't realize until later in life that actually God is all about opening things up for us. I mean, that's the, that you might have life and you might have it in the fullest possible way that you can have life before me. And uh, so I think one of the things we can do is simply say, technology isn't something evil that we battle or something that we always have to be cautious of. We can actually embrace it when we understand who we are in relation to God. We can embrace it and take joy in it. That's the beginning part of it. And then I'd say, then we walk out into a world that doesn't always see things that way. And we take caution. We recognize where things are directed in different ways. Technology as an activity is good, but it takes wrong turns. And then we recognize that in us. When does it become not joy anymore, but greed? When does it become selfishness? When does it become all of these other things that can so easily become as we do that work? How does the Bible's story inform our understanding of technology? You know, this is a, an interesting one that I seem to keep growing in. I, I, I never noticed some things in scripture um, for many years. And I like to tell the students, scripture is not about technology. And when we try to make it about technology, I think we're doing it a disfavor. It is about the covenantal love of God for his people and his creation. And that's the message, right? But because we're people and we're creatures, technology's in there. And then I encourage them, that, okay, take that big picture and go back into scripture and notice things. Just listen to things and see things that you didn't notice before about humans being technical creators and how God responds to that. I just, yeah, there's lots of pictures in scripture. Maybe I love, yeah, the Tower of Babel. We actually used it in our book in sort of a negative way, which is, so I'm going to just turn it just a little bit because some of our, as we wrestled with how to tell this story, we say, yeah, I know it's, it's about misdirected technology and God coming down. But there's also another little bit of beautiful picture in there as well, that when God comes down, the fact that he actually comes down, it doesn't just destroy our work. He actually comes down to look at it. That's, <laughs> that seems to be the picture. Mm. And uh, I love that picture of God coming down. And then he says, hmm, hmm boy, they seem to do some incredible work. He actually affirms it, which I, I sort of, I love in some ways. And then he said, but they do such incredible work that they can get themselves into trouble. And so instead of just blasting away, destroying it, saying, this is all wicked and evil, he actually affirms the building, but then says, but I've got to do something because this misdirected technology is not going to end well. And so then he creates this diversity of language on top of that and, 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 and those kind of things. So there's a positive spin to that very negative technology. And you, when you begin to notice those things, the whole picture is still about God's covenant love for his creation is his care for his people. But you notice those technological elements that make their way in there because humans can't help but be technological. Yeah. In, in what sense are Christian engineers or designers responsible, as in morally responsible for what they design and engineer? Yeah. You know, the word responsible has respond in it. And I always remind students Responsible has respond in it. And so whenever you see responsible, don't see the weight of it's all on me, but rather see your response to your creator. In other words, yes, you are responsible. Okay. That doesn't mean you take it on yourself, but that does remind you who you are in reference to God. So yes, you are responsible to God for the development of his creation. You are called to be that caretaker. He says, go ahead shape it, form it, but also care for it. There's your responsibility. So at every turn, whenever you create something, 
if you can keep in mind that relationship as, as an engineer or technolog technologist, I think you are gonna be a responsible engineer. You can't help but be one. Yes, the responsibility is on those who, who build and shape technology. I, I think that's definitely a scriptural message as well. Is it, go ahead. Yes, okay. How then can we develop and use technology in the most positive way as Christians? How can we encourage our, the Christian engineers, web designers, computer scientists listening to this podcast to really think about how they use their faith in their work? And how do we develop really great technology that, that serves our neighbor and serves God? Yeah, I think it starts with asking good questions at the beginning of a project. Now, I'll also qualify it saying, let's understand that we still work and live in Babylon in exile. There is, there is this picture of it's not all in our hands, but we still try to seek the prosperity, the goodness of the space that we're in. And so I want to give that as advice as well, saying you can't do everything, but when we sit in that meeting room as engineers or technologists, with at the beginning of the project, I guarantee you everybody's going to be asking the question, why? Why are we doing this project? Who is it for? What is it going to serve? What is it going to accomplish? What is our goals? Right? And it's in that space that I believe the Christian engineer has the ability to come into a conversation like that and qualify it and ask questions about what's the legitimate need? Why do we consider this a legitimate need? Is it just for profit or are we going to serve a community? Is it What's its long-term role? Do we, have, do we have the ability to say, who's gonna take care of the problems it might cause? Do we even know the problems it might cause? Those kind of things. And I think that's a, that's a wonderful place for a Christian to, to be leavened and to try to guide and shape in some way the culture that they've been given to take care of. What motivated you to become an engineer? What was it that, uh, that really sparked you off on this journey of, of engineering and indeed, becoming interested in things like thermochemical reactor design and biomass gasification. Oh, yeah. I wish I had a nice linear path. Like I could tell you know, people saying, hey, I just went into it because I loved it from age seven on. And I, that's not at all the case. I, I grew up on, in, in an agricultural world on a farm. And so I did like to tinker. So I just played with things and fixed things. And, 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 and so that's part of it. But I also think it's just a fascination with the broadest picture of the world. One of the things that engineers get to do is we're not really good scientists. We're not really, you know, good business people. We're not really, we're just sort of a little bit of everything. And that, that's, I think that that's sort of who I was. It's just like, there's so many fascinating things in the world. Like uh, what's the best direction to go where I can capture as much of those as I can. And so I think that's one of the reasons what motivated me to do engineering. Um, and I also think it, there were people in my life that lit this, this fire that said, we need Christian engineers. There's a desperate need for Christian engineers. And I think still to this day, that's what probably gets me most excited is that that world does not have a lot of Christian engineers who are thinking Christianly about their work. There's a lot of good, faithful engineers who are Christians, but I think we got to continue to work about on Christian engineers. Um, this might be my final question. What is a Christian view then? And how do you think Christianly about thermochemical reactor design? And the areas that you're interested in working, biomass gasification, what is, what is the Christian perspective on those sorts of areas? 
I think there's a macroscopic view, a big view of it. And then there's a small view of it. And both sides bring in my understanding of who I am and who God is. Uh, on the big side of it, one of the things that fascinates me about um, biorenewable resources is uh, I worked in an industry we generated a lot of biomass waste um, uh, leftover from agricultural processes that usually just went to waste. But I knew they had a lot of energy. In the meantime, we were pulling in a lot of fossil fuel energy to do all of our processes. And it simply didn't make sense that here we were throwing away all of this good energy and we were pulling in all sorts of energy that had been around for you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years and burning it up right on the spot just to get our energy needs um, taken care of. And uh, the responsibility of, of creating a more sustainable energy use in the company was one of the reasons why I love to explore this, this taking waste biomass and produ producing good energy out of it. On the science side of things, I simply think that uh, there is such artistry and beauty in guessing and trying to create pictures of how chemicals and energy work together. And I, I say it that way because it's all, over the years, as I've studied science and I've taught science, there are so many things we don't know. And we do take a lot of guesses at trying to draw the pictures um, using math and science of what God is doing in his complex world and how everything interacts. And so from the small side to the big side, I can connect it to a caretaking, but also this God who creates with delightful complexity um, that we still can't get our minds around. So. Yes, and wonderful sense of stewardship of creation too, by the sound of things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this will be my last question, I think. Why have you called the? <laughs> I never can tell. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> Sounds well, good. I just think there's one more I've got to get. I've got, but I must ask you, why did you call the book a field guide? <laughs> yeah, you know, um, when you have three authors um, that are writing a book, I'll just be honest. This is Christian community all over. They don't always agree, right? We. <laughs> We love really? each other. <laughs> we love each other. We're going in the same direction, but we have different thoughts on how we're going to go. So there was a lot of, you know, push and pull and debate on that too. But I think we came down to this sort of notion of field guide, probably because we felt like after we got done writing it, it was just a stroll out into the technological landscape. And we didn't feel qualified to say, we've got the answers for you. Um, but we felt more qualified to say, Keep your ears open, keep your eyes open, keep watching and looking for how God is going to work in this world of technology and how he can be seen if we have our eyes and ears open to it. And that's what a field guide does. It just sort of, oh, I didn't, I didn't notice this kind of bird or that kind of bird or that kind of animal or that kind of animal. It just, it makes you aware of things. Like you start looking out for things. And that's what I hope we can do with this book. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you. And I, I will say that for anyone, even if you're not working in the areas of technology, even if you have a passing interest or curiosity about uh, technology, then get hold of a copy of this book, um, because I found it fascinating. And I would be the least technological person on the planet, I would imagine. But it's made me think about it. It's great. So Ethan, okay, Brew, okay. Ethan Brew, one of the authors together with Derek Sherman and Stephen Vanderlist, I presume that's how you pronounce them, Vanderlist, something like oh. that. Mm -hmm. of a new book from IVP America called A Christian Field Guide to Technology for Engineers and Designers. You will be challenged, you will be, uh, it will be provocative, you will learn a lot as I did. So Ethan, thank you so much for your time. And thanks as always to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. Ethan, thank you so much, sir. Thanks for having me. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, 
you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.